Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Georgie Corrigal and welcome to this week's In Conversation With podcast. Today I'm joined by a movie industry legend who's responsible for some of the biggest trends to emerge from Hollywood. Ellen Mirajnik is an Emmy Award winning costume designer who has dressed everyone from Sandra Bullock to Sharon Stone and is a longtime collaborator with Michael Douglas, a relationship that began with her work on Fatal Attraction and Wall Street back in 1987. Her various credits read a bit like a who's who of the 20th century's biggest films. And more recently, she can be credited with the amazing costumes in films like The Greatest Showman and in the last year, drumroll please, the hit Netflix series Bridgerton. She is here today to tell us what it takes to make it to the top of your game and I hope to share a little bit of Hollywood gossip too. Ellen Mirajnik. Welcome. How wonderful to have you on the other end of the line today. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be with you, Georgie. This is great. Well, you're in sunny LA and I'm in a rather grey London. So I'm hugely envious and I'm very glad I can't see what it looks like behind you. Um, (laughs) Let's just pretend we're in another universe. That would be nice. No pandemic and lots of sunshine. And I'd be very happy. Ellen, how did you get into costume design? Was it something you always wanted to do? Did you study it? Talk to us a little bit about how you got into this incredible world. Well, actually, no, I I got into costume design by accident, frankly. I used to be, when I first was thrown out of school, I I might add, I became... Hang on, let's just stop there. Thrown out of school? What for? Well, because I went to design school. I went to Parsons School of Design. And they asked me to leave after the first part of the second year. They said, one day you'll be a designer, but we can't tell you when. But (laughs) there's no more space for you because you... You don't know how to drape. You don't know how to make a pattern. You can design, but you can't do any of the technicals. So we don't have any time for you. And they asked me to leave, which I did. I, I, hope, I hope you've been back and shown them your Emmy. <laughs> well, I actually haven't been back, frankly, because the whole administration had changed at that school at the time. But I was very happy to leave because the first job that I did get was designing junior sportswear, what was known as junior sportswear. Today, we would call it trend. And it was great fun. And we did so much in such a short period of time. I worked for great people. And after about seven years, I'd say it was seven, I became bored. I didn't want my own company. I worked for, as I said, great guys. And I learned everything there was to know at that moment about business and wanted a new challenge. My husband at the time was working on a low budget, it was really low budget at that time, film in New Orleans called The French Quarter. I went to visit one weekend and they didn't have a costume designer. Now the film was, I would call it kind of a very hard R if we looked at it. I don't know what it is in London, but I would call it a very hard R which is kind of racy. Okay. In, <laughs> and and eight, we'll go 18. But plus, I, I would or, emphasize or, it. Right. I wouldn't say X, but I would say okay. hard. Anyway, okay. it was called French Quarter, and it was about this uh, mystery that happened in a mystery and a murder mystery, if I remember correctly, that happened in a house of ill repute, if you will, in the French Quarter. But it took place in 1910, I believe, if I remember correctly. And they didn't have a costume designer, and they said, Ellen, would you want to do it? And I said, yes. And I didn't know what the heck I was getting into. And I just jumped in. Had you always wanted to be a designer of some sort, fashion, costume, clothes? I started to paint when I was really, really young. I would say like six years old. 
Right. And I painted and painted, and I went to school, actually, in New York, called the High School of Music and Art. I went to art school every Saturday, you know, and where I learned drawing and live drawing, etc. And then I went to High School of Music and Art and just wanted to continue to paint. And my mom, at that time, said to my fine arts teacher, said, can't you get her to do something that she can earn a living? Right. And, um, and he said... <laughs> Don't worry about it. She'll paint away. She'll make money. Don't worry about the money part. But my mom was very, very concerned. So I think that I always then after that, which she expressed to me, I always thought I better like learn something. I better think about something that I can make money, have a profession that I am passionate about, etc. Mm. So once in New Orleans, looking at designing the French Quarter, which I had no idea how to do it. I just jumped in. Is X-rated? Is that porn? Is that what you're getting at? It's not real porn. It's soft porn. So what that meant at that time, we wouldn't consider it anything today. But at that time, exposing breasts a little bit more than once or twice I guess was considered soft porn. And they needed costumes and it took place at another period of time. And by, I don't know what, the gods of the heavens came down on my shoulder and said, this is what you have to do. And I did everything that one does on a set, designing the clothes, creating the clothes, making the clothes, or having others make them and dressing them on the set, which all of those pieces, I had no idea what to do, but I was able to do it. And the man that I worked for in New York at the company I worked for, I I just pleaded. I said, let me be away for eight weeks. I'll put enough work into the workrooms and I'll come back and everything will be fine. But please let me do this. He knew that I was very kind of bored and looking for something else to do. So he was very, very generous in letting me escape to New Orleans for eight weeks where I really did learn what the rhythm of the film business was like. What Forget the content for a second, but yeah. what the rhythm was. And that was really thinking fast and really creating fast and having to deal with so many different types of people. And I just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with it. I always loved movies. I always loved to look up at the big screen and dream. And were you from a movie showbiz I wasn't brought up with it. My husband at that time was an associate producer. And he, I think he had just entered the entertainment business a couple of years before. And so I just really thought, this is something that I really want to pursue. In a couple, mm. And over the next couple of years, I just plowed on. I designed clothing. So did it go well, the French Quarter? I mean, I th- I've actually discovered the film. I've found it on IMDb and it says it chronicles the life of a young New Orleans prostitute and her co-workers. Yes. So there we go. And anyway, did it go well? The costumes look fab, by the way. The filming went fine. It says, but I d- it says here, Ellen, a delicious blending of elegance and sin. Oh, my God. That's a great line. It's a great tag, <laughs> isn't it? Do you want to know something? Here's the truth. I have never seen it. No. I have no. never seen the film. I'll have to see if I could get it or if, if it's someone has it somewhere. I have never seen it. It was a film that after it was made... I really don't remember what happened. I don't think my husband at the time remembered what happened. However, I think it played in drive-ins in the middle of the country some somewhere. I mean, it was not successful on by any stretch of the imagination, and but it was quite successful for me because I found another passion. So what happened next? What, the next you part like, was... Right, this, is, this is the career I want. This is what I want to do. This is the career that I want. And I met a couple of people on the film who said, well, I think that you should come back to New York and you should learn what the real rhythm of a film set is. And and maybe you should do some commercials at that time. And so I did. And I met some really great people. I learned how to work and think on my feet. I learned how to really do things quickly. And I learned what working in film could be about. Mm -hmm. And I happened to work with like the best of the best at that time. I was quite fortunate. 
And then from that situation of working on commercials, I met a woman named Christy Zia, who was asked to do Fame. And she said, would you come and do this with me? I said, yeah, okay. And so that was just a couple of years. This all happened, I would say, pretty quickly. I was very, very lucky. And it happened within, I would say, a year or two years at the most. Amazing. And that was the the 1980, just for clarity. That was the 1980. I'm, I'm sitting with IMDb in front of me, looking at a lot of people dancing on cars god i need to watch that movie again i haven't watched it it's a great movie you know it's It's quite fun movie talk us through the process of designing Designing a film costumes for the film you know i imagine there's a lot of work at the beginning and does it then calm down yeah what is it like well basically depending on the size of the film the process remains somewhat the same but it depends on the size the location the vision of the director producer, etc. So you begin, of course, with the text and you think about, well, what is this going to be? What I do is as soon as I feel what I've just read, and I emphasize the word feel because that's what I use more of my feeling nature than my intellect, truthfully, in trying to discern what it should be. I then go on, I would call a deep dive of research. And research could be, depending on the project, it could be imagery through photography. If it is a different period, it, and depending on what period it is, it could be paintings, museums. God, that bit must be art. such fun. Do you just love that stage? I do love it quite a lot because... I have to absorb so much information at the same time. So it's always just such a great puzzle to see what comes forth, you know, and what is it that I'm really keying into so that I can build my world, so to speak. And do you build a mood board? I always build a lookbook. It's more than a board. Usually it's a lookbook. And it starts with a board, of course. It starts with a palette. Then it goes to images or paintings, depending on the potpourri of what I want it to look like and feel like. The use of that is so that I can have direct communication and have clear communication with the director and to make sure that we're on the same page or so that he understands what I'm thinking and I can understand what he would really, really, really want because time is always of the essence and, and so time it, is always short. And is it the director that you're reporting to? So yes, um, yes. So, yes. And, and at what point are you going to the director? Do you put your look together and say, am I on the right lines? Or do you, do you actually go further and look at the characters and say, I've come up, you know, at what point do you go? Well, to the I think that the lookbook is basically includes all of it. Everybody does things differently, but mm. usually what I do when, at the stage of the lookbook, it could be one of two things. Either I'm going to do a lookbook, just visuals, that will be a talking point in our first meeting before I get the project. But it is an entree sometimes to say, this is who I am, This, if I don't know the person, this is what I'm thinking, and we have a conversation from there. Then going on to the project, what will happen is I'll develop it further based on possible conversations or feelings and then work through the characters and do a quick sketch of it. Do a quick sketch of the characters because what I really do believe in is that's a nice foundation. Let's put it Mm -hmm. that way. But really, so many things change when that actor or actress walk in the room Mm -hmm. and you really have to work through the character and develop the character. And what point do you know who the cast are? It's different every time. There is no formula for that, none whatsoever. Everything that we just talked about is something that happens pretty much all the time. It doesn't matter who it's with. And even with directors who I work with often, I'll still go through this process in some form or another. There are some directors that say, okay, just do it for yourself. I trust you and do what you think is necessary. 
that's what you want to find. That's you on creative freedom, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure. And I'm sure as you become more established and I'm sure as your career has gone on, that comes naturally. Can we talk about Michael Douglas? How did that come about? What was the first film? Was it Wall Street? What was no, the first... it was Fatal Attraction. That gives me shivers even talking about that film. Well, we started to shoot Fatal Attraction in September Probably. of 1986. We did some additional photography in the summer of 87, and it was released in the fall of 87. Okay. I did Wall Street in the spring of 87, and that film was released in December of 87. It was like that one year that wow. that all took place in. Did you get both gigs separately or did Michael have something to do with you? No, Michael didn't have anything. I didn't know Michael. When I received the job of Fatal Attraction, I would say in the beginning, we actually didn't get along that well. And it was only towards the end of that we really worked very easily together. But in the beginning, Adrian Lyne was such an amazing amazing, amazing director that I loved working with. And he had a very humanistic quality about what he always looked for and how characters were portrayed. And he was a very tasty guy, Adrian, and, and really <laughs> and, liked... And he was director of which? Fatal, Fatal Attraction was... and many other films after. I worked with him for many times. I loved him. He's British. He was part of what I would call the British school in mm -hmm. the 80s, and they developed a particular visual style that was just sensational. It was amazing. And he was one of the directors in that school, I would say. And so I met Michael there. And as I said, we didn't really get along really well in the beginning, and then everything worked out to be fine in the end. And then after that was finished, during January, February of 1987, I met Oliver Stone and for Wall Street. And mm -hmm. I said, I would love to do it. And people said to me at that time, why do you want to do a movie with about men in suits? And I said, <laughs> because I don't really think it's about men in suits. I think that it's another story and they happen to wear suits, but I don't think it's just a, a story about men in suits. So Oliver hired me to be the designer. And at that time on that film, there was every leading man in Hollywood that was after the role of Gordon Gecko, And I think at that time as well, oh, really? Oliver Stone saw every leading man for that role of Gordon Gecko. Why I, did Michael Douglas get it? I don't know the full answer, but the guess to the answer is that I think that he was the underdog and Oliver saw something in him that he could actually become Gordon Gecko, whereby the other actors, hugely talented men, had a veneer about them, although they transform, of course, going into a role. I think that he just wanted to work with someone who was the least likely suspect to get the role. That's mm. my feeling about mm. it. I remember in our interview, Oliver saying, well, what do you think about Michael Douglas? And I said, you know, I have to tell you this. I wasn't really very, very keen on his <laughs> talent prior to working with him on Fatal Attraction, but I think he has become very talented. I think that he has something to offer. And if I hadn't just worked with him, I would not have said this. Aww. And that was the truth. Adrian Lyne, I think, said the same thing. Going back to Fatal Attraction, was that a fun film to work on? It was great fun to work on, but it was great fun to actually work with Adrian because Adrian definitely is a visionary and he absolutely would challenge every thought that you had. So it was a great exchange. It was a great collaboration. I love the producers. I love Adrian and the actors were terrific. And we were all, you know, it was a really different time, Georgie, because everybody working on that film every actor working on that film and all of us behind the camera, everyone was somewhat at the same place. 
Mm. Maybe I was a little bit further behind because it was the first big film or bigger film mm. that I had taken on. But everybody else, there, no one was a movie star. They were good actors, but no one was a movie star. So for everybody, it was a bit of a turning point, basically. It was. It was the mm. turning point. It was crazy. And then, of course, for Michael, following it with Wall Street yeah. in the same year, it changed his life. And what's he like to work with? I've got to ask you. He's very easy to work with and he's very smart. He's very committed. But when I say committed, he's committed, but he trusts those around him to do their job. When an actor lets you do your job and you collaborate with the actor, actress, it's a great partnership, a great relationship. And do you get all the outfits signed off by the director before any shooting stars? I imagine there are changes that are made as characters evolve and things like that. But do you try and have looks for every scene before you start shooting? It's ideal to do it that but way. It it's really but it ideal. <laughs> but it doesn't always happen. It really, really depends. It really depends at what stage you're hired. It depends at what stage. I mean, there are many films that I've taken over. For example, I took over the design on The Greatest Showman four days before they went to shoot. Wow. Okay, we're going to come on to The Greatest Showman. That's on my list. I've got lots to ask you about that. Fascinating. Such a favorite in our household. I've got three young children, yes. so we are oh, big lovely. fans. Oh, lovely. Can we talk about Behind the Candidabra? Because in preparation of today's podcast, I did watch that. Somehow... <laughs> That film passed me by and it sort of, yeah, it came and went. And I think Matt Damon is a terrific actor. He's extraordinary. He's his, great his, in the his film. His facial expressions, how natural he is as an actor, I think is amazing. Yeah, you're um, absolutely correct. Do you know when that film opened, that film actually was shown in the theaters in London. And I was nominated for a BAFTA because it was in the theaters. I won an Emmy for it in the United States because it was on HBO. But in London, it was released theatrically. And throughout Europe, it was released theatrically. For people who haven't watched it, because it did pass me by, it has very good reviews. It's the story of Liberace, who was Mm -hmm. a pianist... Um, of sort of Russian-American and, and a performer. And in his heyday in the 70s, he was the most highly paid performer yes. going. He was also gay and went through various young men who sort of mm-hmm. were his... That know, was his thing. Companions. Anyway, Matt Damon becomes one of his companions. You can sort of imagine what happens in the story. There's a lot of excess. Uh, they say that Elton John inspired him as of Lady Gaga. He's got a terrible shopping habit and lives in the most amazing houses. Anyway... It's hilarious. It's very good. But the costumes are phenomenal. It's a spectacle. Thank you. It's a complete spectacle. And he's obviously a performer. So, and he's in wings going up into the top of the theatre and uh, fabulous jewellery. I mean, you must have had a ball on that. It was sensational. It was absolutely an amazing project to be part of. And we did it really quickly, frankly, but in preparation and in shooting, it was so much fun. But what was wonderful about it is that everybody, there was so much that we could learn about Liberace. The Liberace Foundation, there used to be a Liberace Museum, was so generous with images and pictures and we could study the costumes and so on. We didn't use anything from them, but in terms of the costumes, but they were fabulous. So that research was just, oh, it was like kid in the candy store. It was I'm so sure. wonderful. And then one of my makers in Hargate Costume Company that I worked with, Mary Ellen Fields, she and I had the time of our lives. We had worked together for many, many years, but this project was one that was sensational because what we did is that we used every single one of his performing outfits as research and as the model. And then we, of course, had to interpret it the way we could afford to do it (laughs) and that it could be done in a short period of time because all of his crystals on his real costumes, Liberace, oh my Lord, if you picked up any one of those costumes, it was like picking up a hundred pounds. And how he wore them, yeah, per costume, how he wore them twice a night in performing, he is, I mean, it's a feat for the fittest. It's just quite extraordinary. But 
Michael Douglas's costumes as Liberace were a bit lighter. So we had to really make them practical for today's day and age and doing a film. It was just the most exceptional group of people. And what was real interesting with the men in the film, I remember the first time Matt Damon came in for a fitting. And there are a lot of actors that don't like to go to fittings. It's just something they don't really like to do. By magic, somehow or other, we do it. But it's not like their favorite part of filmmaking. Matt was not really happy coming to the fitting, but he, you know, he knew he had to. And we had prepared a small amount of costumes to just try. Mm. And we had a full rack of furs on another side of the fitting room. In front of where he sat was a full table of jewelry all different types. So in our way of getting Matt into character, he was very generous with his time. And he said, okay, I'll try this and I'll try that. And let's see where we get to. He actually went through the whole rack with us and we got a lot of information. That's what you do get when you can get that far in a fitting so that you know where to go in the next fitting. And once we got to, I don't remember which outfit it was, but it was further down the line in his evolution and living with Lee. I said, would you just do me a favor and let's try that fur? And he said, all right. And he tried the fur and he looked at himself. And I, of course, looked at him looking at himself and he was actually into it. And then he turned around. This is, I like this. (laughs) And then he turned around and looked at the jewels on the table and said, can I try? And we said, of course, whatever you like. The long and the short of it was the fitting, which we just thought would be like a hi, how are you? Let's see what we can get to. But if we don't, it's okay. Just so that we've met, we've talked about it, and we know where to go from here. Turned into the best first fitting that I've ever had mm. with an actor in that, that the character was defined in five seconds, really. Not five seconds. That's an exaggeration. But, but, you, but you like in five minutes. It, you were defining it for them as well. Like, yeah, actually, well, exactly. If they, exactly. If they invest in that process, that can only make getting into character It was perfect. Them. He just had to come back, I think, once to do a final check. But what was interesting from this, we went through every fur on the rack, we went through more clothes, we went through every piece of jewelry, and he was done, basically. But what was really interesting with every male character that followed in their fittings that had to be fully dressed and have jewels, etc., every guy wanted to put on as much jewelry as (gasps) was... (gasps) laid out in front of them. It was great fun. So having that freedom and having that fun was such a joy for every single person working on the film. And of course, being led, it was the first time I worked with Steven Soderbergh and I just fell in love with him as the director. Mm. He's my favorite director to work for. He is extraordinary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's move on to The Greatest Showman out in 20... 17 i mean what a movie how did that come about i mean god who are you if you don't love the greatest showman i mean it's an absolute i agree 100 percent. i don't know how many times i've seen it either my 10 year old because my eight-year-old loves it she now thinks she's too grown up for it and she pretends she doesn't (laughs) like it and then i see secretly hear her singing along and watching out of the corner of her eye but i mean it's just magic isn't it i mean you must have had just such fun that films like that yes must be just just be buzzing what i really love and what i always did love were movie musicals it was a great mm. i love movie musicals i love musicals yeah, i love yeah, music me too and so i was just drawn to it what happened was there was something that 
occurred and the designer that was designing the film had to leave. And I was asked if I wanted to do it four days before the film was to go to camera. Wow. And there were no clothes. They were were like, we've got this really simple film. It'll be a really easy project. No, it was, it was actually, nobody said that. They said, this is really hard. There were no clothes. (laughs) But the first week they wear the same thing the entire week. So maybe you'd be okay. And then we'll go from there. And it was very difficult. But Georgie, I didn't care. I This was a movie musical. I met the director, Michael Gracie, who I adore. And I didn't know at the time. And we met in New York at a very, this is crazy, a very noisy bar. Both of us stood. It was crowded. It was noisy. It was one of those nights in New York that everybody is out. And we tried to speak and talk about what his vision was. And he said, I want you to listen to this. And he gave me his earphones and he wanted to share a couple of the songs. Mm. He said, if you wake up tomorrow and you don't remember one of these songs, then you're not the right designer to do this. But if you do, it could be fun. Well, I did. And I wanted to know it all. And it wasn't that it was fun. It was fun. There was absolutely no ifs, ands, and buts about that. However, it was difficult and we were way behind. We worked day and night to How get How big it. is your team on a film, on a like, film that? like that? That team was not as big, but it was, I would say it was a good 35 people, 40 people. Wow. In in and out of times. Yeah. In and out of times because you have the background people yeah, and they're like four fitters with that. There's a supervisor and four fitters and alterations. So that's probably about seven people altogether. And then there's the main unit. That's another 10. And then there are the cutters, the stitchers, the fitters. The aging and dying textiles, they're the specialty costumes and people working on that, or maybe you need an, even another cutter to come in every now and then. And there are the shoppers. Put that team together for every film. Do you have a team of people you work with on other films who pulls together all these people? Those people are pulled together by me in terms of the heads of each one of those departments that I've just mentioned. I would normally say, can we have so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so? And I'd say that to the costume supervisor, the person who is in charge of the entire running of the show, okay? Mm. And that will go searching to see who's available. And sometimes it's great that you can work back-to-back with the same group of people, depending on the project. And sometimes you have to find a whole new team because you've gotten out of sync with people that you like to work with. And it's just not working in terms of timing. Or for example, I have worked in London for the last three and a half years. So Coming back to Los Angeles or New York to do a film, none of the people that I work with would necessarily be available and waiting for me. So you have to find a new team. You can't like keep people like on a hook waiting for Mm. films to come along. Everybody needs to work. And and so, God, you can see why films cost as much money to make as they do when you talk about the size of costume department and do you dress everybody every time they go on set is someone from the costume department always with them dressing them there's a whole costume team that takes care of dressing right right. there's a whole team i don't necessarily work the set but i will be there for each new costume change that every character has and just to have eyes on it and make sure it's good and and working properly and there's a whole we call that the wardrobe team Okay. And in England, they call them the standbys. I think I prefer the wardrobe team. (laughs) The wardrobe. And they're dressers and everybody, each one of the dressers is responsible for each one of the characters that they dress. So the main characters have someone that's responsible for them and dresses them. So it's the same person every time. But that one dresser could possibly dress three people. Tell us amazing cars, Hugh Jackman, Zac Efron, Zendaya. It's great. It's a, how could, it doesn't get better. All good to work with. Everybody on that film. It was a joyous film. So, for example, like your daughter loves watching it. 
and others have loved watching it and they love the music and they come out singing and every single song has become a hit. Benji and Justin are the most extraordinary music makers ever, composers and lyricists. They're just extraordinary. And the music was amazing. And I think between the music and the colors and, you know, when Hugh Jackman is the lead, Hugh Jackman is by far one of the most generous actors you could ever work with. He is there for everyone. He knows every single person's name on the crew. And of course, his actors, his partners. But on the crew, he knows every single crew person's name. He knows your family. If you had a small child who was sick, and if you had mentioned it once, he'll say, how's your son doing? He remembers everything. He is part of a family of making a film. Like, Mm. he is the most generous actor that I have come across. We have got to talk about Bridgerton. I mean, It's pretty spectacular what happened. My gosh. God, who'd have thought? I mean... Nobody thought. Nobody thought, Georgie, we made this project. And we knew that it was, you know, it was a great project. We had an amazing time doing it, thinking about, you know, designing it, creating that world I did with my team and my co-captain, John Glazer. It was sensational, but we never thought this was going to happen. It was it was a difficult show to do. It was a difficult show to Why, why is that? Well, because we shot it at, unfortunately, a time of year that was not what you see in front of you. <laughs> Actually, it's the magic of movie making. I don't want to upset anybody, but you know, you didn't see the rain, you didn't see the mud, you didn't see the gray weather, (laughs) you didn't see any of that. You saw it be blissfully sunny and pretty. And that's the magic of movies. When was it filmed? We started to shoot in July of 2019, and we shot all through till December. Christmas break, and then came back and finished shooting the interiors, like the houses, the Bridgerton house and the Featherington house, and a couple of other pieces till February 2020. It was right before the pandemic. And were they on location, the houses, or was it also? Oh, the houses were, oh, no, 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 no. Those houses were glorious. They were all on location. We traveled all over England. All over really? England. The Bridgerton house was an, an actual house? Inside. No, no. The Bridgerton house was built and the Featherington house was built. But the others? But the exteriors and, and the others were all location. It was basically an all location project at that time. And God, so what over. is that like? You're all packing up and moving to another location. Yeah, they, they move from location to location. It's I very mean, difficult. Very how many difficult. people are moving? I don't know what the number of... The crew was large, not enormous, but large. And it was packing up every few days and going Jeez. to another place. And you yeah, pack so- up sometimes and then have to go back to the place that you've been to two weeks before and reset up. It depends on a lot of different things. Right. If you're shooting the first part of, let's just say bath for a second. If yeah. you're shooting the first part and you're in bath for, let's say, two weeks and you're shooting episode two and three, mm. but then you have to leave another director comes on and you go elsewhere, but you're going to have to come back to Bath. You see what I mean? Mm. Because you have four directors on Bridgerton. Mm. Each director does two episodes. Is that right? Yeah. And you don't have two directors necessarily standing side by side to do their part. For example, we'll use Bath again to say, okay, I'm going to shoot Bath for episode six after you shoot for episode two. Yeah. How do you get consistency with that many directors on one project? You have producers and you have script supervisors, most importantly. Everybody knows when you accept the position, everybody knows what the overall is. And most importantly, the person that you have to have that consistency is the showrunner. And the showrunner in the case of Bridgerton was the creator, Chris Van Dusen. So it's from his eye and his point of view that his responsibility is to keep it all in one So it's the creative vision, is it, of him? And it's a relatively unknown cast. I mean, there's a few names on there, but I mean, 
was it a plan to have less well-known talent in terms of the cost? Did they ever anticipate it would be as big as it's been? No. You know, everybody knew that it was an interesting and a really good project to be part of. And everybody did their best in bringing it to fruition. And everybody always hopes for the best, that it Mm. will be well-received. Sure. But who was to know that this would take the world by storm? I mean, it set the world ablaze. Has it there been is, as big in the US as it has it, been in the it's UK? It's enormous worldwide. When they announced that it was the biggest show, biggest series, 82 million households had watched it. It was the largest, biggest show to be done by Netflix, they weren't kidding because it was probably at 82 million when it was announced, I'll bet it was really bigger. And you think about if that's households, 82 million households, how many people are in the household? Talk to me about your vision for the costumes. I have to tell you, I was just driving to my mother's on the plane. I said, I've got to go. I'm about to interview this phenomenal costume designer who did Bridgerton. She said, could you ask her? Why, there's so much pale blue. Can you talk to us about that? Because there's a real palette for everybody. Yes. Is that a thing? Or is that just something you created? Or did families have color palettes? I think so. I think that what I was drawn to, I mean, we were drawn to for the Bridgertons, we were drawn to, I would say, French macaroons and all the prettiness (laughs) of French macaroons. La Dure. It's got it written (laughs) all over it. But creating the world of Bridgerton had to be an adaptation of the Regency period in 1813 in London. Mm. And what I mean by that, we were not making an historically correct period piece. No, we, decided, I mean... we were making a romance novel yeah. filled with love and lusciousness. And, and sex, sex. And more and, sex. <laughs> and then a little bit more sex. And frankly, we just wanted it to really stir your imagination. And with that, it needed to feel as if it was something that you could be enveloped by and luxurious and be enveloped by Mm. in the story, just as you would be if you were reading a romance novel, because Mm. we had, of course, love and romance, and it's always so, you know, imaginative for the reader. So now you're the viewer, and we wanted it to be just the same. And the blue of the family of Bridgerton is that Chris had written about the blue of Daphne's blue and right. everything else, re- you know, revolved around it. She did go into other colors. And but what we did first and foremost for the palette of the entire show is that we shifted the palette to be more vibrant colors than the colors that would necessarily be the standard colors of 1813. We took the liberties to move it into a vibrant and a little bit more modern palette so that we would be able to use modern fabrics, modern colors, creating different colors by creating different types of overlays and embellishments. And create such a different look and feel to any other, you know, Regency drama. Yes. And actually, the point being is that, you know, there were a couple of liberties that we did take, of course. (laughs) Uh, We took a a lot of liberties, but we didn't. We kept the silhouettes being 100% accurate. There's a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, 100% accurate, Mm. and that's male and female. But when you color it differently and you use different types of fabric, it will look entirely different. Mm. But the silhouette is exactly what it's supposed to be. The Mm, difference mm. is, is that at that time, at the Regency time in in London, because of the wars, there weren't fabrics that were available. Fabrics did not come in from France. Silks and beautiful fabrics had ceased. And so the Regency period had a lot of woven fabric or muslin type fabrics, and they were not fluid. So they embellished their gowns, but we took it a step further and added a fluidity by doing overlayers of colors and fabrics and then embellishments so that it would feel different. And God, it did in such a joyous way. It was pure well, escapism I, was, at a time when, when the world just really needed a bit of escapism. I mean, without a question. It, and you know, the, the most wonderful thing about it for me is that it's brought so much joy mm. to so many people across the planet. 
you could sit there at Christmas time and get a, a present and continue to watch it now, but bring so much joy and smiles and laughter to so many people in this time of darkness that mm. it has given me such a beautiful feeling. You know, the more people that I learned that loved it and wanted more and more and more and more and more and more, it was such a surprise. And of course, a delightful surprise. And it was just so great that people could actually feel and feel the love that we tried to put on the screen mm. in this wow. in this kind of distressing time. I mean, what great timing it was. Who is your favorite to dress? Well, I love all of them. I just love all of them. And everybody has a different personality. It's so crazy. Everybody has a different personality. I love doing the queen. I mean, it was so I love Golda so much because she was such a laugh. She was up for anything. I love doing her. I love doing Daphne. Daphne was so sweet. And of course... I love doing every single one of the men. And reggae, please, how does it, how do you not like How think do you about, look like that? I mean. I mean, but he was a sensational actor to work with because he came in, he had really done his homework about the character. He brought so much to the table, but it was quite interesting with him because as soon as he came into the fitting room with the knowledge that he had really absorbed about his character, it was the quickest fitting because mm. it was right or it was wrong. And mm. it was very clear what had to be done from the very beginning. And he walked right into it. We knew the shape, the silhouette, what his neck needed to be. As if you notice, he's always... Or 90% of the time, he's in open shirts. He's in black shirts. He's in white I, shirts. I, I, I had this. He has no yeah. shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but the definition of his silhouette in the show happened immediately. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Tell me about their breasts, because I have to say, Lady Bridgerton had pretty full breasts coming out of the top of her dress. And I, right. I noticed that Phoebe in the beginning was quite, you know, nothing was protruding. And then... Actually, I'm looking at a picture of her now, putting on her lace gloves in a blue uh -huh. dress. Yes, in and, a blue dress. And they are definitely bulging a little bit more. Was that a, something that you could do once you were married? Or was that just you playing around? Or, or what? You know, this is something that was very interesting to me because it was not planned. It was not. There was no psychology behind it. And right in that silhouette because what basically the corset did was embrace your breast and push it up. That was the focus of, you know, each decade has a different focus, mm. whether it is your breast, your waist, your knees, your legs, not showing and so on. In this particular period, the focus was the bosom and, you know, the mounds of the bosom were you know, pretty and somewhat on display. I think. <laughs> um, anyhow, I think that there were certain times, everything was always consistent. Mm. It was not necessarily, let me see more in one dress and not in another, but sometimes the truth of what I believe the differences that you see is perhaps the where the woman was in her cycle and how it was photographed and how mm. the camera angle picks something up because there was nothing that wasn't made to be more on Monday and less on Wednesday. Do you know what I mean? In a different yeah, yeah, change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything was consistent. Sometimes the bodice, the way the bodice draped around around made the um, breath yeah, made it or, bigger or yeah. if it was a different moment in like when you shot one scene, you know, for example, on Lady Bridgerton, when she shot one scene and then had to shoot the balance of the scene three months later, you know, sometimes those changes occur. But what adds to it is how the camera captures it and sure. what happens in a certain position. And sometimes you move the actor because well, it doesn't appear to be a good match to what was shot before. And sometimes sure. they just say, mm, we don't have any time. We have to shoot it now. That's the reality of it. 
I, I can't put into words. I mean, what a triumph it was. How Thank you so much. The, well, the costumes, without pointing out the bleeding obvious, were such a huge part of the, the joy that we all got from it. And oh, I'm so happy. To work on. What can you tell us? Can you give us a tidbit about Bridgerton that someone listening might not know? What might the viewer not know that you could divulge that isn't compromising anybody? Listen, there's been so much press. I can't imagine that people don't know the fact that we built as many pieces of costume as we did. We created a costume house to do this. I'll tell you this. Wow. To do any number of the people that you see at the balls, okay? The women at the balls. Each one of those costumes are totally bespoke. Each one of the background artists came in. They were fit head to toe by our great assistant costume designers, manned by my co-captain, John Glazer. And every single one of those actors, whether they had a speaking part or not, was fit as you fit a principal actor. There was not one costume that you see was the costume that was hanging on the rack. They were all created by the brilliance of the fitters and the assistant costume designer and John Glazer as each person came in and left. It was all bespoke per person, head to toe. What did you spend on the costumes? A lot. (laughs) A lot. A lot. But, you know, we created it because, you know, Georgie, the thing about it was is that this was a Regency period project without a question. You can't scrimp on a Regency. You know, this is the aristocracy. And you can't scrimp, but the truth... Yes, but the truth is there was basically nothing in costume houses across the world to do this in, whereby you would rent the costumes. And we needed so many costumes that the most inexpensive way to do it was to do it by what I call for the background artists, because each one of the principal ladies and men were done by a specific cutter in-house. Each one of the costumes on all of the background artists were done in what I call a stack and stitch manner, okay? And what that means is that we picked three silhouettes for the women, Uh and each one of the houses, whether they be in Budapest, in Italy, in Spain, in the UK, we chose all the fabrics. They lay up the fabric, cut the dresses, and that's how we filled our warehouse with basic shapes. Mm. Then from that, we did basic, the same thing with basic shapes of the overlays, basic shapes of the coats. We did all basic shapes. So all of that, I think there is a picture somewhere of what the size of the warehouse looks like. All of that was available to our brilliant bespoke background extras team when they created each one of the costumes that went before camera. How many people were in your costume department, Bridgerton? Well, I'm going to tell you this number, and this is a very big number, because this includes now, you know what I told you about the wardrobe people. Yes, yes. Right? So what, and the costume standbys. and wardrobe. Costume and wardrobe, 238. Wow. It's a lot. God. Amazing. It's a lot. Amazing. It was great fun, though. And I'm so happy that the result is so really, really wonderfully received. Well, I've no doubt you're going to win several awards for your the incredible work you did. Um, thank you so much it's been such a joy i feel like there's so much more i could have asked you ellen well maybe we can have a recap at another time we'll have to have a recap and we're gonna cross our fingers and toes for season two three four five six and on a bridgerton yes you know there are eight children uh, well there there you go eight seasons there you go the possibilities are endless um you are hugely in demand i'm very grateful for your time it's been lovely to chat Oh, it's lovely to chat with you, Georgie. I hope we can do it again. Me too. That's it for today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, leave us a comment and tell your friends to listen too. We will be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.